Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Unexpected Points. We have a Week 10 review going through some unfortunately unsuccessful best bets for the most part. Also hitting on a lot of big topics here. Who are the contenders? Who are the pretenders? Are the Patriots the best team ever now after their win? Are the Rams the worst team ever? Let's figure all this stuff out, including what's going on with the Bucks, right here, right now. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Tuesday edition of the pod. Tuesday wrap-up edition, kind of my, my, probably my favorite. I mean, I love giving out the best bets and going into some of my rants a little bit more on Fridays, but I think the information that you're getting here on this Tuesday wrap-up is probably the most valuable information in my humble opinion, Uh, not only because of the fact that I have my proprietary adjusted scores, which puts into better context the more sustainable elements of how teams are playing with success rates versus their efficiency and so on and so forth, bringing in PFF metrics like turnover-worthy plays and drops and all that stuff. But I'm also going to do my same spiel that I've been doing here where I'm going to say, what's the headline that I'm seeing out there? Now, that's heavily influenced by who I'm following on Twitter, probably, or on social media. But I'm going to say, what are the headlines that you're seeing out there on social media, on the TV, and on these different games? And I'm going to give you an alternative headline, and I'm going to always look to pick apart some of the mainstream narratives. When I get into some of these games, I'm going to be more explicit about the fact that I am going against some of the consensus here, not because I believe that is the most objective, accurate, holistic assessment, but because if you want to hear about why the Patriots are strong contenders, why Mac Jones is one of the greatest rookie quarterbacks ever, and everything else that happened in a game like that where it was a total wipeout, if you want to hear about that, There are probably a hundred different football podcasts you can listen to that'll tell you that. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to recognize that, I'll say first off. I'm going to acknowledge that, but then I'm also going to go into how can we poke holes, how can we think about this in in a better way, how can we not be so beholden to recency bias when we look at these games. That's the focus of what I'm going to do here as I go through each and every game from the weekend. But before I start, if you want to get access to a lot of the tools that I'm looking at here, you want to get access to my written content, uh, whether it be fantasy or good old, regular old, smash mouth football content, if you want to get access to all of that, 25% off promo code unexpected for this podcast, unexpected points podcast, unexpected promo code, 25% off. Give yourself a deal and then also let the higher ups, let Chris Collinsworth and all of them know how much you appreciate the content on this pod. Let's jump right into it right now. We're going to go Rams, 49ers, Monday Night Football, 31 to 10. The San Francisco 49ers win at home. They were a three and a half point underdog in this game. My adjusted score, again, weighing more heavily on success rate, downplaying some of the outlier plays, downplaying special teams, downplaying some some of the more lucky turnovers like fumbles. My adjusted score is 24 to 12, San Francisco. So still a healthy win. Not quite as as big as the actual win, but still a healthy win. So what's the headline that you're going to get coming out of this? I'm not quite sure. I think the headline is going to be a combination of a couple different things. One, There are no teams we can believe in, including the Rams. And two, Stafford falling apart. I'm going to dig more into the Stafford thing 
there as far as there being no high-end teams. We we discussed this a little bit on the pod last week that it is a real thing that the high-end teams this year, where I have them projected, their neutral field against an average football team projections, what I would put the point spread for the top teams in the NFL, it is lower generally this season than the top teams uh, last year in particular, but even in pre- previous seasons. So that's a real thing. But my alternative headline for this one is something that has to be recognized is, you know, Jimmy G comes through again. That sounds like a weird headline because everyone wants to bury the guy, but I've been stating this for the last few weeks here, and I know that the 49ers got crushed by the Cardinals and Colt McCoy last week, but it really wasn't Jimmy G's fault. He had a, he had a good game. He had a good game the week before, and he had a good game this week, uh, especially a good game this week with limited opportunities. And I think that offensive strategy, while it can work here, it's not always going to work. And I'm going to quibble a little bit with, uh, you know, the Shanna stands out there who are going to defend uh, Kyle Shanahan to the death, although they're, they're starting to get off of Shanahan Hill a bit. You know, I, I've been off of there for quite a while now. Okay, so the thing that I want to talk about from a macro perspective, when we look at what Jimmy G was able to do, you could say, well, he wasn't that important in the game because he was involved in 22 different plays, 21 dropbacks, one designed run, uh, one sneak that he that he helped that he that he picked up, and they ran 66 total plays on offense. So. You know, I'm going to use my high-level math skills here and tell you that he was involved in one-third of the offensive plays. When a quarterback is only involved in one-third of the offensive plays and you look at their pass rate versus expectation was extremely low in this game, uh, despite the fact that they were leading most of the time, most of the game, we still would have expected a pass rate closer to 50%. You could say that, therefore, Jimmy G was not important in this game. They only use them a third of the time. They they ran the ball a ton. If you look at the 25 different series that they had, and this is some great information that's being provided now by friend of the pod, Ben Baldwin, on his site, rbsdm.com, which is short for running backs don't matter.com. Uh, if you go into their box scores, their advanced box scores, he has a nice little setup there where it shows how often were they converting on each series of downs and whether or not they were converting when they started with a run or when they started with a pass. So in the 25 series of downs that they had in this game, they started with a run on first down on 23 of 25. They only started with a drop back on two of those series. And they converted a first down on all 23 of those series. So I think you can look at that and say, again, the running game was the key here. And digging into the success rates in the EPA, the situation becomes a little bit more muddled in how you're going to view it because... If you look at the running game, the EPA per play there actually was slightly negative. But the success rate at 44% was pretty good. So the success rate, the success rates that I'm looking at is I look at a play, does it have positive expected points added or does it have negative expected points added on that one particular play? And then I'll call it a success if it does and then so on and so forth. And it's good to look at success rates because that's much more consistent than the outlier uh, efficiency, big efficiency plays, which are, let's say, a long touchdown or a turnover on the other side of the scale. So at 44%, that's a good performance for a running game. So they were doing well on grinding, right? But when you have this type of offense, and this is what I think is is a little bit of an oxymoron about running this type of offense with a quarterback you're quote-unquote trying to hide 
And there's evidence that you're trying to hide Jimmy G by not letting him pass that often. I'll also talk about some clock management stuff that Shanahan did at the end of the half that definitely looks like you're trying to hide Jimmy G. That was a big theme in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago about whether or not they really wanted to give Jimmy G a chance to win the game as opposed to being someone they're hiding. So when you're trying to do this, unless you can generate explosive runs and there weren't enough explosive runs in this game to give them a really high overall efficiency on that running game for the 49ers, unless you're generating a lot of explosive runs, you still have to rely on the quarterback for the for the high leverage plays. And you're putting the quarterback in a situation where he's going to be in a lot of third down situations. And in the NFL, you pass the ball on third down almost all the time. If it's outside of third and two, you're passing the ball 70, 80, and then it gets up to 90% of the time once you're even in third and four and third and five and things like that. You really pass the ball a lot. Now, teams probably pass the ball a little bit too often in the third and two, third and three, third and four situations, especially with the ability to go for it on fourth down. But, you know, that's neither here or there. I'm not going to get into the strategy of that. It's just a fact that you're going to have to rely on the quarterback the way that teams are currently doing things on these third downs. So Jimmy wasn't being relied upon to matriculate the ball down the field, but he was being relied upon to keep these drives alive. Without converting third downs in in this run-heavy scheme, what you're doing is you're shrinking the sample for your quarterback, but you're making each one of those passes that he throws. Again, he had 21 dropbacks, right? So he had 21 dropbacks, but then on third and fourth down, when he had to convert these plays... The dropbacks, he had 10 of those 21 dropbacks were on third downs and fourth down where he was being put in a position where he had to convert it. So you're basically saying half of the time this guy's passing, it's a very, very, very important play. You're not giving him a bunch of plays where you can experiment on or it's, it's not high leverage. So in a way, you're putting a little bit more on the quarterback in how the game is going to turn out. Now, Sometimes this works with a quarterback who wasn't that good because you're just hoping for luck a lot of the time here. It's turning into more of a dice roll. Sometimes you can have a hot streak with even someone like Blake Bortles when you saw that the run that they made back in 2017, I want to say, when they when they went far in the playoffs where they said, we're going to take the ball out of your hands a lot. You have some success on third down and boom, we can do well here. And that's what happened with Jimmy G last night. If you look at the play, so again, 10 dropbacks on third and fourth down. The success rate was 70% on those. So you have to really convert these to have it be a successful play. So 70% there. He was he generated 1.5 EPA per dropback, which is a huge, huge number right there. That's what got him overall in this game to have an EPA per play of 0.71. And that's a big, big number. That is you know twice the amount of the best quarterback in the league so far this year. There's no quarterback right now who's even over 0.3 EPA per play. So more than twice, Uh, almost one and a half times. I mean, sorry, two and a half times the amount that any quarterback is producing this year is what he produced in this game because of how how reliant they were on those late downs, because they converted so many third downs, especially early in the game to take the lead. Uh, And they converted that big fourth down, which ended up being a touchdown to Depot Samuel. So you try to, they try to get away from Jimmy G, but then they're actually heavily reliant upon his play there. And we need to recognize that he has been someone not so far earlier this season, but throughout his career, who has been better than average on converting on third downs, because I think a lot of what he does, which is 
he doesn't hesitate. He just fires the ball into windows in the middle of the field, and we saw that on that Debo Samuel touchdown. That can be great or not so great. I think it's good in converting third downs because you're willing to take a shot. You're not going to check down. You're not going to hold the ball too long and take a sack like we see some other quarterbacks who are poor on third downs, relatively poor on third downs like a Russell Wilson or uh, you know, Kirk Cousins to some degree. He's going to fire it in there. Now, what it does mean, though, is that he may not be properly weighing what he's doing. And on first and second down, why they're scared to allow him to throw is he'll do the same thing on first and second down. He'll try to fire it in there, and then they'll end up uh, being an ugly interception that people will ding him for. He loves throwing over the middle of the field, too, which is great for converting, but, again, raises your interception likelihood enormously as opposed to throwing out to the sideline where you can where you can use that sideline as a place to uh, shield the the ball from getting inter- intercepted uh, by throwing it to the outside shoulder of these guys down the middle of the field it's just much more likely someone's going to step in front there's going to be a tip something's going to happen you're going to get intercepted and that's where he throws most of his plays so again when we look at Jimmy and there's this continued disconnect between his grading and his EPA I had a rant a couple of weeks ago about how I thought that Jimmy was going to be in it for the long haul here for the 49ers uh, it looked a little rough after what happened last week it would have been even rougher if they didn't win this week but he has not been the problem um, but there is this disconnect between his grading and his EPA I mean he had a 79.5 passing grade for this game last night which is good I mean that's a good grade but it's nowhere close if you're going to look at the distribution of outcomes to how high end his EPA per play was at 0.7 EPA per play and on the season his offensive grade his offensive PFF grade for Jimmy Garoppolo is 26th amongst quarterbacks who have at least 100 snaps so far this year but he's sixth in EPA per play and if he's right between Patrick Mahomes and Dak Prescott in EPA per play. So he's playing like an elite, elite quarterback by his actual on-the-field results, but we grade him much lower down. So the question there, again, for someone like Kyle Shanahan is, yeah, we can bring in Trey Lance. Theoretically, maybe he gives you things that Jimmy G can't do, but the -the on-the-field results, even if they aren't being done in a way that's impressing people, even if people aren't going to send out a think piece about how how well Jimmy Garoppolo was playing, the on-the-field results, if you're getting top five, top six results from your quarterback, that's pretty good. Now, you'd like to be using him more often, and if you did him in a high-volume sort of role, that may fall. He may not, He's not going to sustain a high-volume role like a Patrick Mahomes or a Dak Prescott can, but for now, it is working. Okay, so let's flip to, like I said, one of the big headlines here, and that's going to be uh, Matthew Stafford falling apart. This is the second week of poor, poor play. He was head and shoulders above the rest of the NFL in his efficiency, not in his grading, though. His grading has been in the teens, but in his efficiency so far this year. He had negative 17 EPA uh, last week. This week, it's gonna be, it was in the neighborhood of 7, 8 negative EPA, just bad, bad performances. Four turnover-worthy plays, so it could have been even worse. I mean, the pick six that he had returned was a was not a turnover-worthy play. That was a drop on uh, Tyler Higby. But he had, you know, the interception where he was throwing it deep early to Odell Beckham. There's a miscommunication there. And I don't know, I, I looked at, uh, I, I committed a cardinal sin of analytics, and I did look at the hashtag all 22 on that. I don't get what he was doing. Like, I don't know what he would have thought Beckham would have done. That The guy was just playing center field back there. There was nowhere to squeeze the ball, and even the location of where it went made absolutely no sense. So that was an obvious t- turnover-worthy play, but there were three other plays that could have been interceptions that were ended up being dropped or were just a little too hot to handle for the defensive backs. So it could have been actually much, much worse on this game, in, in this game. 
And I think another thing that has to get some headlines here is just some awful game management from both sides here. Um, the joke, and I, I'm not sure if this was coined by Adam Levitan over at Establish the Run, but calling Sean McVay a fake sharp, sharp being, you know, someone who's smart, someone who's a, who's a good better is normally what you're talking about there, who isn't just a fish, like a sharp versus a fish or a sharp DFS player. Uh, a fake sharp because he's young, he, you know, he, he has this innovative scheme, he, he talks the talk, um, same with Shanahan to a degree. But when you look at some of the obvious on-the-field decisions that they're making, it makes no sense. And McVeigh has been really, really bad on fourth downs, and so has Shanahan. It's not just that they're not aggressive, it's that they don't know when to be aggressive. So there were some really funny plays here, especially at the end of the half. Not only, we had a couple different things happening. Number one, once it got under two minutes, um, Shanahan should have started calling timeouts. And there was, the Rams had all three of their timeouts, they had the ball, I think, was within the 30-yard line. There was no chance that they were going to run out of time. So you weren't going to be doing them any favors by calling your timeouts here. Um, and you want to try to get the ball back with some time left. So they should have been calling timeouts immediately, even after first down, even if you don't know if they're going to convert that series of downs or not, just to potentially get the ball back. Now, they didn't end up converting that series of downs, but they ended up attempting a field goal then with 18 seconds left on the clock because Shanahan was not calling timeouts, where it could have been something more like a minute and 45 seconds, a minute and 40 seconds left. So there's there's that. He was just scared to give the ball back to his quarterback, which is extremely strange. Why not get the ball back? I know they were getting the ball to start the second half, but don't use that as an excuse to not want that extra possession there. Get another possession for your quarterback. You don't trust your quarterback, but you know you don't want to give him an extra possession at, at the same time. Uh, so there was that problem there. Now, if you flip over to McVay's side of it, he wasn't taking timeouts, which, again, should be an indication to the defense that you should take timeouts. At every point in time, one team should want to stop the clock. There may become an equilibrium when it's late enough, there's no, nothing really going on, where both teams are okay with the clock running. But in this situation, there was a clear bias towards the offense wanting the clock to run and not give the ball back to the other team, and that should have been an indication to Shanahan to call timeouts. But McVay here... So he lets it run down to 18. They have a fourth, I wish I had the exact number here, sorry, but it's more like fourth, I don't know, what was it, six, seven, eight yards, something like that. And I don't know if he called this. I haven't seen the post-game pressers on this. I don't know if it was a move that Johnny Hecker, you know, audibleized into. He's he He loves to throw the ball, so that's a possibility. But the fake field goal here, it didn't make any sense for a couple different reasons. Number one, that's a long way to get. To get, to get more than, you know, even if you're in a situation more than fourth and five yards, that's a long way to get, number one. Number two, 18 seconds left. So not taking the easy three points, your hope is to get the, the touchdown. If you don't get the touchdown, then you're not getting anything out of it. Well, if you don't throw it all the way into the end zone, and I don't know if you're, you're like your punter is going to be throwing a touchdown into the end zone from 20 yards out. Um, if that doesn't happen, you don't have enough time left on the clock to... I mean, you, you, have a, you, have maybe a, you maybe have enough time to get a chance or two, probably only one more shot into the end zone, but you're not giving yourself a high enough of a touchdown probability after conversion to make it worth the risk of losing the three points and not converting. It really, that play made absolutely no sense, and I don't know what's going on there from McVay. And then later in the game from McVay, he's punting in situations where, yeah, it's, it's fourth and four on, you're on your own side of the field. But when you're down by 
three scores, you you got to take these opportunities. You're giving your quarterback a less one fewer possession when possessions are something that you definitely need in these games. Um, and then the last thing, which was really interesting here, is the aspect of keeping the starters on the field all the way until the very end. I mean, once the game is over, I think teams should be pulling their starters much earlier once it's really like 100% win probability type of situation. And I know, you know, the the 28 to 3 happens. Those situations happen. So I'm not going to say – I'm not going to say too early. I'm not going to say do it in the middle of the third quarter like it was then. But once you're well into the fourth quarter, go ahead and pull these guys out. I mean, McVay, I think, was being sharp by not playing his guys in the preseason. So you're not going to play your guys all preseason. You're going to care so much about player health, but then you're going to throw them out there in a meaningless game um, to take drives and potentially get hurt, especially when you're thin at wide receiver. What if Cooper Cup goes down? Um, You don't have anybody left here after Robert Woods is going down. You're going to have Odo Beckham and uh, a bunch of scrubs out there at wide receiver. It could be disastrous for you. Uh, I get Van Jefferson. Sorry, I don't mean to slight Van Jefferson. He would still be out there. But still, it would be a tough situation. They don't have a lot behind Tyler Higby at tight end. They don't have, you know, Daryl Henderson is someone who gets injured very easily. I'm not sure why guys are playing late in this game when it was over, over, over. And again, another fake sharp sort of move from McVay. And he's probably someone I probably should have already had on my radar or on notice. But this is just a continuing thing. And he does offset it with the other things that he does. But generally, I think it was a game where... Both coaches made decisions to their detriment. Didn't end up affecting Shanahan because everything went so well with Jimmy G on third downs, but then we saw it come to bite McVay uh, when that offense is not working as well as it can. Okay, before we get on to the less reviews, which are going to be you know a little bit snappier, I like to hit on the, uh, the Monday night game in detail since you're not going to hear that on a lot of podcasts this week. Uh, let's get into some of the ads here. And Manscaped is back. All hail Manscaped. Uh, They just launched new products, including their all-new Ultra Premium Body Wash and a 2-in-1 Shampoo Conditioner. Uh, I prefer like a a 4-in-1, if you can get 4-in-1 in there, but 2-in-1 sounds pretty good. Uh, It's time to give yourself or someone needs it the gift of beautiful skin, hair, this holiday season. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code PFF for 20% off and free shipping. This week, we are giving away... Multiple performance package 4.0 rate review the podcast, leave your email, and we will choose winners at the end of the week. Inside the performance package 4.0, you get the signature lawnmower 4.0, you get this electric trimmer with skin safe technology, it's waterproof, you can use it in the shower, uh, the two in one shampoo conditioner. Uh, Tis the season to load up on Manscaped products, so get yourself, your dad, your brother, and friends the best gift. Of all, Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. Again, rate, review the podcast, leave your email in the review, and we will choose winners at the end of the week. 20% off and free shipping if you want to also go to manscaped.com and use promo code PFF. And I'll also hit DraftKings while we're while we're on the subject of sponsors and football fans. Who's ready to score some free bets? Uh, the sportsbook is not available in your state. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed here. You new customers, $1, bet $1 on either team, win $100 in free bets. But if you don't have the sportsbook, daily fantasy contests and huge cash prizes are available. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. 
If they score, you score. With promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Okay, let's get into the rest of these games. I'm going to go to Sunday Night Football. Maybe not quite working in reverse chronological order, but let's go Sunday Night Football. And the Kansas City Chiefs at Las Vegas Raiders, 41-14 Chiefs. Chiefs close as a two-and-a-half-point favorite in this one. My adjusted score, 31-14. So the same score for the Raiders, a little bit lower for Kansas City. 31-14 Kansas City. So the headline you're going to see on this one is the Chiefs offense is back. My alternative headline is Chiefs offense is still on my radar. Remember, uh, if you remember my succession of moves here, I moved them onto my radar a few weeks ago. Then they were on notice after they struggled uh, two weeks ago. I'm still going to put them, I'm going to move them back. You know, you you didn't get canceled, Chiefs offense. That would have taken a lot. But I'm going to move them back to just being on my radar at this point. And some people got mad at me for some Chiefs fans, because I think I have a decent amount of Chiefs fans following me. It's kind of a weird thing. I have a decent amount of Chiefs fans following me because I love Patrick Mahomes. I'm a Mahomes stan, which is weird to say because... Like, he's the best quarterback in the NFL. But I've always thought that he's even a little bit underappreciated in some ways. So when I was slightly critical or maybe a little incredulous of this offensive rebirth that we saw, at least in the first half, some people started jumping on me. And what I said was that, you know, I know they had a couple touchdowns to Tyreek Hill, but after that first half, I was not... It didn't feel the same. It didn't feel the same as the explosive Chiefs offense. And I looked up some numbers, and the reason it didn't feel the same is that if you look at the average depth of reception in the first half, so when it was actually caught, 3.3 yards was it. That was the average depth in there. That went up to 7.3 in the second half. So I agree. The second half looked a little bit more like the Chiefs offense coming back in. But again, didn't quite see enough for me to really take them completely off of the scale. They're still on my radar a little bit here. Uh, And also Kansas City, they converted a lot of third downs here. And I like my offense to not get into third downs, if you can. Now, obviously, you're going to get into third downs. You're going to have to convert. But relying upon converting, let's see, 12 of the 15 times that they went to third down, they converted. That's a lot. That's not going to happen every week, even to an offense like the Chiefs, which is going to give you better than average, much better than average third down conversions. I'd like to not get into so many third downs. They were three of three on fourth down. As part of that, Uh, they had an absolutely insane 25 expected points added on third and fourth down. You don't want to be too reliant on that. Again, it's something that's generally unstable because it's so high leverage in those situations, because the variance is so high for your outcomes in those situations, your outcomes according to expected points added, because those plays are so important. Now, there is some sustainability to that type of play, but it takes longer to figure that out. Yes, Patrick Mahomes will give you above average play on that, but not this high up. Uh, And when we talk to another reason to be a little bit skeptical, I don't want to read too much into the what sort of defense that they're facing. But when you have everyone screaming over and over again how the Raiders were sticking into this cover three defense rather than going into the cover two shells or, you know, cover two and then switching to middle of the field uh, post snap or whatever they were doing. Yeah, I look, the Raiders were in straight cover three 44% of the time, which is the highest 
percentage that we've seen against the Chiefs this year. So maybe there is something to that. So the Raiders were just not adhering to the formula that had worked against the Chiefs. So I'm not going to put too much into that because I think it's a little bit weird to say two high defenses, which were uh, invented, you know, right after fire was invented, um, that that is somehow frustrating Patrick Mahomes this season all of a sudden. But I'm not going to totally discount it. And it's a reason to think, let's see Mahomes really beat the 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 same defenses that he was supposedly really having trouble with so far this so far this year. Um, so still on my radar. Let's go to the Raiders here because the Raiders are a team you're hoping they really needed this game to get back into the playoff hunt. So what's going on with the Raiders offense? Well, it's a 64 grade for Carr here. So a bad grade after he'd been grading well this so far this year. Slightly negative EPA per play. So not awful, better than his grade in some ways. But if you look at Carr, and it's a little convenient sometimes to look at these on-off splits and attribute it to an easy narrative like Henry Ruggs stretching the field, but I do think that was a very, very important function that he had. Deshaun Jackson did come in. He had that long catch. He had that weird play afterwards. People had no idea what he was doing. It actually wasn't as weird when I looked at the replay. I kind of got that he was trying to turn around in a weird way because he thought that the defender was going to get to him. Um, So they did have a long play to Jackson there, but missing that down the field element. So if you look at Derek Carr this season, the numbers around it, where if you look weeks one through eight, and of course these are weeks which he had Henry Ruggs, he generated 37 expected points on 20 plus air yard throws. So throws that were in the air, at least 20 yards down the field, which was third of 38 qualifying quarterbacks. And then in weeks nine and 10, these last two weeks at without Henry Ruggs, negative 7.3, which is 32nd. So he's gone from the top to the bottom almost on these 20 plus air yard throws. You don't want to attribute it too much to one particular thing, but it's hard not to think that the loss of Henry Ruggs has created a void in this offense, which may be filled partially by Deshaun Jackson, especially if he gets his snaps up. But again, he's not the most reliable guy as far as staying on the field is concerned. What's also strange about this game, zero sacks for the Raiders, but they had a ton of pressure, 39% pressure rate, 20% fast pressure rate. And again, I look at, I like to focus on these fast pressures, which come in 2.5 or less seconds. Um, And they only blitz 5.9% of the time. And they were able to get a ton, a ton of pressure on Mahomes, but he was able to negotiate out of it, which he normally is very good at. And again, not take sacks, not take a lot of hits. So that was a very positive thing to see from Mahomes too, because it shows that the ball is not sticking to his hands too much. The ball is coming out quicker. That's important to me, more important to me than a lot of these, you know, should he be patient? Should he not be patient? Should all this other stuff. Like I like to see the, the quicker decisions, whether it's throwing down the field or not. He missed a bunch of longer throws in this game where he could have been better there, but those will come. Those will come eventually. And Again, I'm more positive on the offense, but not all the way back for me yet. Uh, maybe not the most impactful game from, uh, or not the closest game, that's for certain, but a game that I think is is actually kind of impactful, how we view the playoff situation, the playoff situation in the AFC. We have our Cleveland Browns at New England Patriots, 45-7 New England Patriots, a total and complete wipeout. Patriots close at a two and a half point favorite. My adjusted score is 32 to seven. So the same score for the Browns, but a little bit less for 
the uh, the Patriots. And this was a huge, enormous, gigantic loser for me on my best bets of Cleveland plus two and a half points. Um, I feel like I want to wipe off of the face of the internet some of the things that I said about this last week. Not that I feel like I was actually wrong in the process, but it sounds pretty funny in retrospect because um, my point was, I don't know if there's anything that the Patriots do better than the Browns. And the Patriots then proceeded to dominate the Browns in every facet of the game. So the headline coming out of this, I think, is going to be a lot on Baker Mayfield and his failures. You can't win with Baker Mayfield. Again, this is just like two weeks ago. We can almost just rotate headlines for the Browns every other week when they win or when they lose. So that's going to be a lot of the headline here. My alternative headline for this particular game is Baker was bad, but the... 2007 Patriots with Randy Moss and Tom Brady wouldn't have been able to hang with Mac Jones and this Patriot offense on Sunday. So the Patriots were only stopped from scoring a TD twice. Only two drives they were stopped from scoring a touchdown. One of those was a field goal to end the first half. That's it. Otherwise, they scored a touchdown every single time. Really hard to win, no matter how good your offense is. So again, Baker was bad. I'm acknowledging that. I'm saying that it's a problem. It's an issue going forward. But in this particular game, he wasn't the reason that they lost. Like if they got a good performance out of him, they still were going to lose this game. It was not going to be close either way in this particular game. Now you need good performances for him going forward, but things got out of hand very, very quickly. When the other team is scoring a touchdown every single time they're touching the ball. It's really, really difficult for an offense on the other side to not start pressing, to not start having issues. And if you look at the the Patriots, the way that they converted and and continue to convert third downs, there were a lot of long third downs that they were converting. They started six of six on third down. They converted third and eight, third and six, third and 13, third and one which is pretty easy, but then third and five and third and nine. So all of those but one was really like a third and long type of situation. And if you take the expected conversion probabilities on each one of those that I calculate based upon down, distance, field position, all that stuff, um, and you just say, what's the probability, assuming these are independent events? They're not independent events, but let's assume that for the the sake of our calculation. You're going to say, what's the probability of doing boom, 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 getting six in a row just like this? Uh, we have a 0.3% chance that that'll happen. This is the first time they converted six in a row to start a game since 2007 because of how long these were. These were not converting, you know, third and one, third and two over and over again. So again, you tip your cap to Mac Jones on this, but it's not necessarily sustainable offense. It's not necessarily something we're going to say going forward. We should say, oh, yep, this is who Mac Jones is. Impossible to stop on third down. Because if you look at his numbers on late downs so far this season, weeks one through nine on late downs, if you look at the expected points added on third and fourth down plays that Mac Jones was involved in, dropbacks that he had, it was a negative 13 EPA weeks one through nine, and then it was a positive 13 in this one week. So he wiped out and he's back to even on the season. So maybe you have some evidence that he's not good and not bad, 
on these third downs, but I don't think we have a lot of evidence that he's great on these third downs. And that's what people may be thinking now is that this is some sort of sustainable formula like what we saw from Jimmy G to a, to a degree as which is you run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. Mac Jones is great at converting those third downs because he's so accurate. He assess, he, you know, he assesses the situation quickly. He does everything else. Nah, you know, he, he hasn't been, he's been like, okay, he's a rookie. He's been okay this year. And it's been up and down. There's no clear trend moving in any direction other than the fact that this last game, this recency bias game, is way, way up there. So we shouldn't necessarily act like this is flipping a switch. Again, I'm going to be a little bit of a hater on Mac Jones and the Patriots here because you're going to hear so many positive things about them. I want to put this in perspective to the larger season. Let's not lose focus on what's going on. Uh, Let's go back to Baker for a second before I get into the rest of my uh, Patriots takes. So Baker was bad, and that should be talked about. We should definitely talk about it. 33.1 grade to Mac Jones is 92.5. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, He's a 15th percentile in dropback success rate. If you look at his success rate there and efficiency versus, again, Mac Jones had this ridiculous game. He was in the 99th percentile in his efficiency. How are you going to beat that? So 15th percentile is bad. It's not like fifth percentile though and we'll see later on there's some other games where other players were in that percentile so baker's grade was really that bad but his performance was bad not good enough to win in almost a lot of different circumstances but you know nothing would have been good enough to win in this circumstance so if you look at epa per play in this game it was negative 0.14 which if you rank all 306 qualifying performances by quarterbacks this year so games where they had at least 15 plays in those games it ranks of 306 it was the 82nd worst so not that bad it's like in the bottom third bottom fourth ish sort of outcome the bottom quarter not that bad when you really think about it but it was ugly and it gave and they had no chance I think that was the real oppressive feeling is they had no chance because of what was going on on the other side of the ball so let's talk about uh, the Patriots and their playoff chances, all that stuff, because now people want to talk about them being competitors or not. I think the healthy thing to do in this situation is let's go to the, let's go to our friends in Vegas. Let's go to our friends in the desert here, our betting friends, and try to get a more comprehensive view of what's going on in the AFC. So the Patriots, can they really compete for a Super Bowl? I mean, the AFC is definitely more wide open. And I'm going to look at the conference championship odds because Super Bowl odds are... Like, just take your conference championship odds and cut it in half. There's no dominant team this year that's going to make it to the Super Bowl that's really going to be a huge favorite against another team that makes it all the way to the Super Bowl and wins all those games. So let's look at the conference championship odds here. Uh, Their probability right now, I'm looking at DraftKings Sportsbook, sponsor of the pod. Uh, Plus 1100, so that's an 8.3% implied probability. So it's something. It's decent, but it's fifth in the AFC. And if you look at the top four, you could almost, you can almost think of a few different tiers. You can think of the bills in, in a little bit of being in a tier by themselves. Um, because the bills are up, you know, more in like the 20% plus, I think it's 23% implied probability. Then we have the Titans, the chiefs and the Ravens, which are in the teens, 16% for the Titans and the chiefs, 14% for the Ravens. They're implied, Uh, probability of winning the conference championship. Then there's another step down, and that's where the Patriots come in at the top of the next tier at 8.3%. But they're in the same tier, like the Chargers are 7.7%. That's very close to the Patriots, yet because of the fact that the Chargers lost this week, 
and the Patriots won, I don't think there are many people that would see them as being almost co-equals on their chances to win the championship this year uh, because of this recency bias. But they really are, and I think that that's a, a fair assessment. Uh, even the Browns are next. Now, a little bit of a step down, going down to 5.3% implied probability, but close enough to the Patriots that I put them in that same tier. And then the Bengals are maybe fringe in that tier at 4.3%. Um, so this is a big, you know, this is, this is the Bengals are at plus 2,200. If you look at the NFC, it's really dominated by five real contenders, the Bucks, the Rams, Oh, the Rams. This is this was I did this before the Rams lost last night, but they'll still be up there. The Packers, the Cowboys, and the Cardinals are those teams that are at the top. And then there's a monstrous gap next to the New Orleans Saints, who have even a lower probability than the Bengals or, or anyone in the third tier or the fourth tier, however you want to say it, uh, for the the AFC. Um, so yeah, Patriots are in it. They're in it along with the Browns, the Chargers, and the Bengals in this next tier, but they're not in the same tier as the Ravens, the Chiefs, the Titans, or the Bills. They're not. There's really a clear defining difference there. Um, that's how you should think about them right now. I, I agree with the odds here. So, you know, Mac Jones, let's talk about him because, again, I think there is a skew where we're looking at his good performance so far this year, and we're because of the context of the other rookie quarterbacks are really struggling, we're going to say this is some sort of outlier, great rookie season where it's not that great. In grading, it is. Or it's pretty darn good in grading. He's fifth in, in, in grading right now in the NFL. But he's 19th in EPA per play. So you'd like to see more consistency between those numbers before we start crowning him. And when you're going to hear a lot about Mac, it's so unusual that he's playing at this high level as a rookie. I mean, maybe there's something if you're going to, you know, grind up the film and, you know, grind that film, snort it up and, and, and spit out some takes where you want to hit the take that, that you're thinking of before you even look at the film, which is he's playing at this high, high mental level that you don't see for rookies. That's fine. But as far as his actual performance this happens more often for rookies than maybe we're willing to acknowledge. Yeah, you don't like expect every rookie to be great, but there are great rookie seasons. Like I said, fairly often. If you look back, I mean, we had Justin Herbert just last season. Is he playing better than Herbert? Maybe a little bit, but Herbert was definitely more efficient in EPA per play in his rookie season than what Mac Jones has been so far this season. Um, 2019 wasn't anything too great. Kyler did not play that well as a rookie. Let's go back to 2018. Baker had a pretty good rookie season. I think Mac has been better than Baker was that 2018, but again, it's close. Like there was a lot of buzz about Baker. If you go back to 2017 in a very shortened 2017, Deshaun Watson was playing at a ridiculous level as far as his efficiency. But again, it was a shortened season, but at an insane level, better than Mac Jones this season. Dak in 2016, better than Mac Jones, in my opinion. Maybe not in his grading, but he was a MVP-ish sort of candidate that season. Deservedly. So is Mac Jones an MVP-ish sort of candidate? No, he's not close to an MVP candidate this season. So again, we have Dak. And this is, again, I'm naming all these names and we're just going back to 2016. You go back to 2015, Winston and Mariota looked pretty credible as rookies. They were more league average-ish, and that's why you were getting excited about them. But they look credible as rookies, as Mac Jones does now. And then 
he had some dark years there. But if you go back to two, uh, 2011, Cam Newton had a fantastic rookie season from an efficiency perspective. So again, th- this happens a little bit more often. Let's not get too crazy with Mac Jones. Let's acknowledge how good he is, but let's not try to overhype everything that happens every single week in the NFL season. Okay, next game, I'm going to review the Buccaneers at the Washington football team, 29-19 football team. The Bucs were 9.5-point favorites going into this. My adjusted score, 24-20 football team, Washington football team. So a little bit closer, 4-point differential versus a 10-point differential. And the headline you're going to see out there is Bucks implode against an awful Washington team. My alternative headline is, Washington finally got some good luck in this game after having the worst, some of the worst luck in the NFL. Uh, Again, this is a football team that we bet on. We won once where we probably should have lost, and we lost once where we should have won. And the reason that we've liked them, although they weren't quite enough good enough to make a best bet this time, the reason we like them is that they have the worst luck on late downs, especially their defense. Teams are just able to convert on them over and over and over again. Now, maybe it is a consistent thing, but we got... It, it came a little bit closer in this game that we wouldn't have seen before is that the Washington offense was getting the late down luck. They had 9.6 EPA on those late downs, only three EPA for the Bucks. So the Bucks still did a little bit better than you would have expected on late downs, but not that much. So this was a strong performance for relative performance for the football team defense just by not being awful on those late downs. Um, surprisingly low average depth of target for Brady in this one, especially in that sort of stretching offense. Maybe they're starting really to be hurt by the loss of Antonio Brown, Gronk not being part of it, um, what Washington was able to do on defense. 5.6 average depth of target, and he wasn't really under pressure. It's a 23% pressure rate, but, you know, he also gets the ball out in 2.2 seconds. But he's But he's been able to generate decent average depth of target even with getting the ball out quickly in the past. And... If you look at uh, Taylor Heineke, again, he's one of these guys where luck has kind of gone against him a lot. You know, he took a lot of sacks. He had a couple of dropped interceptions, so he got he got lucky there. Um, and he was equal in his all-around grade to Brady. So he wasn't great, but he played good enough, and he didn't have a lot of bad things happen. Now, Brady had two interceptions. One of them was off of Jalen Darden's hand, so one of them was not a turnover-worthy play. So a little bit of luck went against the Bucks there again. So that's why my adjusted score is tighter than the actual score on this. And which I thought was interesting is after the game, Arians didn't throw Brady under the bus, but he was attributing both interceptions to Brady somehow, which is a little bit strange. That's, you know, one of them, Jalen Darden caught it and then turned and just kind of threw the ball up in the air. Um, so that was a little bit strange. But I think maybe Arians, and he's had a problem with his fourth down decisions for a while, maybe he's got to look at himself in the mirror a little bit here. Because there were two different situations uh, there were when the Bucks were down six to sixteen. It was fourth and two at their own forty-six yard line. You might not think this is uh, necessarily a time you got to go. It's the third quarter. There are twelve minutes left. There's still plenty of time left. You're only down ten points. Blah blah blah. You have a great offense. You're down ten points. You're on the road. It's two yards. Go and pick it up. And this one, this was like a very strong go for it recommendation, built on the fact that you assume that this offense is going to be able to convert here. Um, and you really just need to get closer than you think. Sometimes, you know, waiting for multiple score comebacks, you can't wait too long on these because you're because you, it's, it's then it's dependent on the other offense flaming out. And your defense is a little bit banged up, has been a little banged up and not quite playing at that same level it has in the past. So that was a huge loss. And then later in the game, 
again, down by 10 points at their own 48 this time rather than their own 46. It was fourth and sixth, and this is to start the fourth quarter. Again, this is not a situation where a lot of teams are going to go for it, but there is a huge win probability gain on this because you're down by multiple scores in this situation, and you have a good offense. So you combine those two together. We're talking about 11, 11 and a half, 11 to 12 maybe a little bit less if you want to change some of the assumptions. Let's say 10 to 12% win probability loss by not taking advantage of those fourth downs. I know Arians is not the guy to go for it in midfield where it's not a fourth and one, but maybe look in the mirror a little bit here, Bruce. Those are the chances that you have to take to win games where things are not going your way. Luck is going against you on the road and you're struggling a bit. Take those chances. You don't pass up those chances because you're struggling. You take those chances because you're struggling. I think that's definitely a way coaches look at it in a reverse, uh, in a reverse um, explanation. So there was also a play, of course, where Riverboat Ron came back from a, uh, I guess the, the, the Riverboat side of Ron had been on sabbatical for a while because I don't know if we'd seen a lot of, of this from him recently, but he went for it at the end of the game, right at the end of the one-yard line, up by four points, scored the touchdown, put it out of reach. There wasn't a huge uptick in win probability for doing that because you had such a high chance of winning even if you kick the field goal here Um, because it would have put you up by seven points and then Brady would have needed to score a touchdown and then it would have gone to overtime and so on and so forth. But it was the right decision. I love seeing it. And if you don't convert there, Brady still needs a touchdown starting from inside the one-yard line with 30 seconds left to go and no timeouts. I mean, if Brady does that, you tip the cap, you say, great job. You know, uh, end the game when you can. I'm, I, I love to see Ron do that. And there was also another little interesting wrinkle, which I thought was great, that I hadn't even thought about, or it happened so quickly, I wouldn't have thought about it, is that after scoring that touchdown, they're up by 10 points. You can decide when you're up by 10 points here with 30 seconds left, whether to kick the extra point, or not, and they decided to line up like they're going for two, but then they just they just took a knee. So they would maintain that 10-point lead no matter what because in the most random of circumstances, let's say you're kicking the extra point, you go to kick the extra point, they block the extra point, scoop it up, run it in for a, their own conversion, that's two points to them, lowers the score to eight points, which puts it conceivably in the realm of possibility that the the Bucks could then get the ball back, score a touchdown, two-point conversion, and send it to overtime. So again, you know, like not a huge advantage, like cutting out the most unlikely of circumstances, but still, why not take free win probability? And that's another situation where you're getting free win probability by taking a knee there rather than doing the traditional thing to kick the extra point to go up by 11. Um, just keep it at 10. You don't. Who cares if you have 10 or 11 points that you're ending up winning the game by? Okay, let's go to Falcons... At Dallas Cowboys, 43-3, to Dallas Cowboys. Uh, the Dallas eight-point favorites, the closing line, is down from nine. People love the Falcons. I mentioned that on Friday. People are loving the Falcons in this one, and you got crushed. Um, the adjusted score I have here is 36-14, so a little bit tighter, but still a 22-point differential is enormous. I think the headline is going to be here, Dak and Cowboys offense is back. My alternative headline is Cowboys defense is back. Not that they went away for that long, but they actually obviously had a rough going, and they're going to have more variability against. Uh, they had a rough going against the Broncos the week before. So while the offense was great, I would say the defense was even better in this game. 
Uh, yeah, they got three turnovers. Yeah, they maybe had some luck as far as holding the Falcons down on late downs, but they also had really, really good success rate numbers. They were keeping the Falcons' offense, which had been humming to a degree. They kept it down in the low 30% in their success rates, and that is fundamentally strong, strong uh, defense, which I like. Matt Ryan, 9 of 21, 117 yards, two picks. One was on a nice play by Diggs. The other was a bobbled pass that was not really a turnover-worthy play. But a struggle for Matt Ryan, there's going to be games like that where without Calvin Ridley, without a dynamic player down the field other than Kyle Pitts, it's going to be it's going to be hard. And a week after losing 40-16, the Cowboys, where it was really more like almost 40 nothing in that game because they scored two touchdowns in total garbage time. There's only four minutes left to go in the game. Um, I've seen some people out there talking to you, Cowboy, uh, Cowboy stats, although I love, you know, you're my bud. Um, putting out, oh, look at the Cowboys. They have the, you know, one of the best point differentials over the last two weeks. Let's not count those two touchdowns and two two-point conversions at the end of last week in garbage time. They sucked last week. This is like a wash between these two games. Let's not pretend like they've been great. They've been good overall these last two games. Uh, the Cowboys were at 100% win probability at halftime in this game, so it was over early. I'm not counting a lot of what basically anything that went on in the fourth quarter and counting a little bit of what went on in the third quarter in my numbers and in my projections going forward. But dominant win for the Cowboys. Uh, people were getting a little too hyped by the Falcons this year. My underlying numbers were not strong on them. I didn't have a play on Dallas, though, but I would have leaned that way, I think, according to my numbers last week. And um, hopefully you didn't get caught up in Falcons hype. Okay, next game here, Jacksonville Jaguars at Indianapolis Colts. 23 to 17. The Colts win the game by six points. They were, they closed as a 10 point favorite. My adjusted score is actually 2019 Jacksonville. It's Jacksonville by one point. And ding, 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 ding. This is our winner for the week. Where the Jaguars plus 10 and a half. So we got a little closing line value there when it moved down to 10. That's a decent half point there. And the headline here Colts are still in the hunt. My alternative headline is. The Colts were lucky to win against a bad Jaguars team, and this is kind of a long headline. I'll admit that. Jaguars defense playing well two straight weeks. Um, So if you look at this game, the Colts played – the Colts looked like the Colts of the first – because it was six, seven weeks of the season where Carson Wentz didn't really make too many mistakes, but then they had no upside on offense, no big plays on offense – Uh, at least in the passing game. And if you look at nine of the 10 top EPA swings in this game, so if you take the movement of the kind of the absolute value, either up or down on a particular play, the expected points movement, nine of those 10 plays were Jaguars plays. Their offense is all over the place, up and down. Colts didn't have many big, big plays, and that plagued them earlier this season. So we'd like to see that get back on track for them to have a chance to really make a comeback here and to get back into the playoff picture, strongly into the playoff picture. But with the AFC as muddled as it is, who knows? Uh, so the big plays here that affected the score, making it more towards Jacksonville, for me, Jacksonville by a point versus losing by six points in the actual score, is pump block touchdown for the Colts. That's a 5.1 EPA move. Um, it's actually, in some ways, you might think it's surprising that it's not a bigger move than that. But again, remember, when we're doing expected points added, you're comparing the expected points before the play to the expected points after the play. So yeah, you're getting that touchdown for the Colts. So you would say, oh, well, if they're getting seven points, then 
the expected points added has to be seven plus something extra. Well, it's not plus something extra because it's on a punt where you're giving up the ball. So the punting team has negative expected points going into that play because you're about to give the ball to the other team who is most likely to score next. So for that reason, I know, you know, you don't want to get too much into the nitty gritty of this, but I think it's interesting conceptually to know, you know, like throwing an interception on first and 10 and having a return for a touchdown is a much, much worse play than having a punt block for a touchdown because your expected points going into the player are high on first and 10. You have, you, you, depending on where you're on the field, it could be very high on first and 10, whereas your expected points going into a punt is negative. So just something to think about. Uh, the Jags also missed a 51 yard field goal, which is not a gimme, but in the NFL today, you should be making, you know, more than half of those. Um, so the Jags had about the same success rate in EPA per play as the Colts. The running game is really what kept them in it, especially a 66-yard touchdown from Jamal Agnew when he was lined up in the backfield. I'm liking a little bit of this trend that we're seeing of putting these receivers in the backfield. We saw it a handful of times with Debo Samuel uh, in the 49ers game. Why not put these guys back there? They're very dynamic. If you're going to run the ball outside, why not give it to your speed guy who has the chance of much, much higher chance of an explosive play. Why not give it to them rather than give it to the 215 pound running back who is a mixture of power and speed to be able to hold up to punishment. If you're going to run the ball on the outside, like they did on this play, go ahead and and give it to your, your, your little speedster and make sure he gets down. Doesn't take too much of a punishment on that one. I think it's a great play. I like to see more of that. Uh, they had an 80 to 85th percentile run game versus they were, you know, only 10th percentile in the passing game. So Trevor Lawrence struggled. And again, I know a lot of the people in the um, the group that I'm gonna I'm trying to think of a group, it's a you know tongue in cheek disparaging name for my antagonists were the Justin Fields apologists who are now become the Trevor Lawrence apologists. I'm gonna call some of these guys. And gals out there, don't forget the gals. Uh, I'm going to call it the the football media cool kids. I'm calling the football media cool kids. These analysts out there, they kind of they seem to all have the same opinion on a lot of different things, as I mentioned before. I think there's probably social media is causing a little too much groupthink, and then probably Twitter DMs are a problem too. If we got rid of Twitter DMs, we might have better variety of opinions when uh, we're not like consolidating everyone's opinions behind the scenes. But anyway, Lawrence here. 46% completion percentage, under 50%, negative 15% completions below expectations. So again, he he you know he's he has a decent A dot. He's throwing it more than average depth of target is more than 10 yards down the field, but he's just not completing anything. Now they have four drops, so that hurts. And there's been drops for the Jags this year. Some of them are egregious. This game, though, I looked at the four drops, they were all iffy. They were more situations where you would hope the receiver would make a play rather than, like, a really bad drop. So I'm not going to give him full credit for, for all of those out there. And we go back to Wentz. Again, low, this is a game where you can win this game, playing against the Jaguars offense that's struggling to do anything, but we're going to need to see a little bit more from Wentz going forward. 5.7 average depth of target, only one big-time throw, 5.3 yards per attempt. And it was Jonathan Taylor, once again, with 117 yards and 80 after contact. That was really propelling them forward by helping them move. But again, that was an offense that was getting bogged down quite often, and neither side was really moving the ball in this game. Okay, let's get to Buffalo Bills at New York Jets. Might as well get this. 
shit show out of the way. 45-17, Buffalo Bills win. 13-point favorites, Buffalo Bills. Justin score, 41-21. So pretty close, 20-point differential versus a 27-point differential. Buffalo, loser. This is a huge loser. Uh, Pathetic best bet of mine, which was the New York Jets plus 13. Apologies there. Uh, I think the headline for this game is going to be the King is dead. Mike White is dead. Long live the King. Zach Wilson coming back in. And my alternative headline is the Jets' defense is destroying and owning defense doesn't matter. Bad defense doesn't matter in this game. And, of course, the Josh Allen get right game, which some people should be focusing on a bit more is that he finally had an actual good performance, although it's been against the defense now, which is redefining ineptitude. And part of the rationale why I said this was a good bet was, number one, Buffalo's offense has been struggling more than you think, although maybe the Jags' defense is somewhat legit after holding down the Colts' offense this week and then only giving up six points to the Bills the week before. So that was part of the rationale. Second part of the rationale was Jets' defense can't be as bad as they've been the last two weeks when they got totally completely stomped, or or I should say two out of the last three weeks, where a few weeks ago they got – the 50-burger for the um, for the Patriots, and then they got crushed by the Colts, as we all unfortunately saw on Thursday Night Football. and But now they got crushed again here. So if you look at these games, three out of the last four games, the Jets' defense, what they've given up EPA per play, they've given up 98th or 99th percentile outcomes. So outcomes you're only going to see once or twice out of 100 games the efficiency on offense. You're only going to see it once or twice out of 100 games. The Jets are giving that up in three of the last four games. Oof. Not good. Not good at all. And while these are decent offenses, this is not 2007 Patriots they're facing every single week. Uh, Total failure, run or pass, defense, doesn't matter. Only a 22% pressure rate. Only a 3% fast pressure rate. So only 3% of dropbacks. Maybe it's one time. I don't even know how often it was. Um, probably one time then they had a pressure in fewer than or less than 2.5 seconds. And this is against a 2.7 average time to throw, which is a little bit faster than usual for Josh Allen, but not incredibly fast by any stretch. Uh, Allen had his best game of the year, concerned about his play being the motivation again to bet against the bills. And I was wrong, wrong about that. 92.8 grade in this game, 0.6 EPA per play. One of the highest outcomes of the week. Not as high as Jimmy Garoppolo, but pretty good. 75% completion percentage, 13.1 yards per attempt. Six big-time throws on only 28 attempts. So that big-time throw rate of over 20% is the highest of any quarterback this season. He was dropping some dimes down the field and playing like old Josh Allen. Again, some of these long plays, it's up and down. Some of his randomness, some of his not. There's been a lot of focus, and we also saw you know Stephon Diggs turn it around this time, and I think that's part of it. You had great, great performance with that connection last year. Some of it was unsustainable. You had underperformance this year that was probably unsustainable on the low side. Now that's popping back for Diggs here and probably better things in the future coming for them going forward. And, you know, the Bills defense continues to look very, very strong. They're getting pressure, and that pressure is sustainable. I'm sorry, Bills. I bet on you back-to-back weeks. Uh, One huge win, one huge, huge loss. You, You got me this time. Okay, before we get on to the last 
handful of games here. Let's talk Western and Southern. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights to help you ahead, get ahead on your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Sunday Night Football? Uh, now you can ask either question or both. And for every football or financial question, earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that is westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching this on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Okay, ugly, ugly, ugly game. Detroit Lions at Pittsburgh Steelers, 16-16. We have a glorious tie here. I'm glad I did not watch a second of this game. I refuse. It is, uh, Pittsburgh was a 6% favorite is where it closed. My adjusted score is 21-16 Pittsburgh. So kind of close to being a cover on this one. Obviously it didn't happen. Uh, the headline in this one is yuck. My alternative headline is just double yuck. Just disgusting. Uh, the Lions leaned into the run in this one. Goff is, talk about hiding your quarterback. 43% pass rate in this one, 21% under expectation. Pretty unheard of types of numbers for teams that are not winning the entire game. 30% success rate for the Lions, 37% for the Steelers, so that's why they have a bit of an edge on the adjusted score. Uh, 85th percentile running efficiency for the Lions, which is mainly because of a 42 and 28-yard touchdown run. So again, that's another thing that brings down the Lions' projection here vis-a-vis the Steelers is a couple of outlier running plays. You don't see 25-plus rushing touchdowns very often, and the Lions got two of them in this game. Uh, tough to have any takeaways in this one with you know Mason Rudolph playing and how relevant the, the Steelers are here. Um, the only thing that's relevant to this podcast or our analytical angle here is you know Mike Tomlin, fourth and three, 16 all, at their own 48, Four minutes and 34 seconds left. It's a pretty strong go-for-it situation there. I know you're with Mason Rudolph, so I kind of get, and you, the other offense stinks, so I get everything there. Probably should have gone for it, but then again, the results really panned out because the reason you go for it in this situation is you're scared with that little time left, four and a half minutes, the other team will drive down the field, will take three and a half, four minutes off the clock and kick the game-winning field goal. Well, the Lions proceeded to just poop themselves on offense and then kick the ball right back to the Steelers with plenty of time to try to score themselves. Of course, they do not do, but plenty of time back. So maybe I'm not going to get on Tomlin too much about this one. But according to the numbers, I am legally obligated to talk about these fourth down decisions. Um, okay, Saints, Tennessee Titans. This was an interesting one. And I think it's one we got to talk about with some narratives here because the Titans are kind of getting on my radar for being bad offensively. 23-21 Titans. Titans were a three-point favorite, so you lost out on that one if you bet Titans. And the adjusted score here, I have 23-20, but New Orleans being the better team, the Saints being the better team. So I think the headline here is the refs screwed the Saints with a awful uh, roughing the passer call. And my alternative headline is the refs, unlucky plays, and Peyton, Sean Payton's fourth down call screwed the Saints. In addition to subhead, Titans offense continues to struggle post-Henry, as much as I hate to admit it, as a running backs don't matter nerd. I have to admit that they're not playing well. So the Saints really outplayed 
the Titans in all the relevant areas. They had a 33% success rate for their offense versus 30, I mean, sorry, 43% success rate for their offense versus 38 for the Titans. So better there. The Titans had a negative 0.14 EPA per play. The Saints were positive 0.12. So then what happened? Well, I mentioned the penalties. You had a roughing the passer call, which was questionable on a play where Ryan Tannehill gets intercepted in the end zone. Then following that, you had another pass interference, which got them to the one, which then they scored the the touchdown on that one. And Trevor Simeon looked okay in this game. He's legitimately okay. Now, I think his their odds to win the NFC Championship are a bit muted at this point, but because it'd be tough to get back into this. But, you know, he averaged 0.2 EPA per play against a, a defense that was bringing a lot of pressure. They were getting a ton of pressure on him, and he's still at a 10.8 A dot. He doesn't have a strong arm, but he's unafraid to throw the ball down the field. He had a 78 grade in this game. Now, he, well, he did have four sacks, so... He took some sacks in this game. That would be the one negative, and we saw the pressure there. But he was able to make up for it with big plays to get back into it. And again, let's get back to this Titans offense, which is firmly probably on notice at this point. It's gone beyond being on on my radar. So with with Henry out, um, let's look at the last four games that Derrick Henry played. So before he was out, if you look at their, their offensive efficiency percentile as a total offense, they were 93rd percentile in one game, 82nd, 79th, and 65th. Now, the last two weeks, they've been 27th percentile and 26th percentile. They're kind of like a bottom quarter offense versus being well in, you know, a top quarter, top 10, top 10th percentile type of offense. Um, I think the Titans really need Julio back to open things up offensively. And, you know, no, no carries for Adrian Peterson, for the love of God. Uh, so the biggest play in the game from EPA swing was a fumble by Deontay Harris on a kickoff to start the second half. So that was a big one. That's another reason why I'm flipping over towards the Saints because, yes, that matters. Yes, it's a bad play by Harris, but there's a huge randomness element to that play. And also, let's see how Sean Payton kind of screwed himself on this one or screwed the the Saints on this one, and that is fourth and one at the one-yard line, Five minutes and 35 seconds to go, down by 11 points, he chooses to kick a 20-yard field goal. So then you're down by eight points. So think about all the things that need to go right on this one with, with, with less than six minutes left to go. So in order to win this game, if you decide to kick that field goal, you, you want to just give yourself more outs to win. Even if, if you don't convert, you're dead. That's fine, but whether, you, whether you're dead at five minutes and 35 seconds left or you're dead at one minute left, which ended up happening in this game, you know, is, is, it doesn't help. It doesn't give you, you don't, get, you don't get a worse loss for being dead at, with five minutes and 35 seconds left to go. So think about this. When you kick the field goal, what do you need to happen? You need a stop. You need a fairly quick stop because you need to get the ball back with enough time to score another touchdown. So you need a stop, you need another touchdown, you need a two-point conversion, and you need to win in overtime. So you got to really extend that game. So you need those four different things to happen. Whereas if you kick, if you if you score the conversion, yeah, you need the conversion to hit, but then you just need a stop and a touchdown, and you win the game. No overtime. So you only need three things to happen. So again, why, why do something where you need four things to happen where you can just do something where you only need three things to happen? And you're trying to score from the one. So that's probably a better chance than winning in overtime anyway. 
So bad play by Sean Payton there. He hasn't been great about some of these decisions. I know maybe there's an issue without Evan Kamara there with Trevor Simeon playing, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, you, you got to take the touchdown there and try to win this game. Don't extend the game. Don't hold off losing the game or things like that. This happen, and it could be the difference between the playoffs or not this season. Carolina Panthers at Arizona Cardinals, 34 to 10. The Panthers win. Cardinals seven point favorite in this one. And my score, 33 to four, is my adjusted score for the Cardinals. So even worse than the actual score. Uh, the headline you're going to see is Cam Newton's back. Playoffs are a possibility. My alternative headline is Panthers defense continues to beat down on lesser competition. I mean, a four, four is the adjusted score. I know it's Colt McCoy, I know all that stuff. That's a strong, strong defensive performance. Cardinal success rate was only 30%, which is a fourth percentile. Their EPA per play was negative 0.5 EPA per play, which is a second percentile. Strong, strong defensive performance for the Panthers at Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Philip Walker, PJ, our man PJ, actually had a decent day. He was a little bit overshadowed by Newton and the fact that Newton came in. Uh, Cam came in and scored two touchdowns on his first two plays. Uh, but he was conservative, which is understandable, knowing how Matt Rule wants to run this offense. Uh, 74 grade, no sacks taken, 78% completion percentage for Walker, but only six yards per attempt. So when you're only getting six yards per attempt on a 78% completion percentage, you're not stretching the field a whole lot here. Um, he didn't really end up with a strongly an EPA per play because he got dinged for a fumble on a handoff that was attributed to him, although I'm not sure why, quite honestly. Um only a 2.2 time to throw for Walker, 3.6 yard a dot, zero passes that went over 20 yards in the air. So very, very conservative game plan, but it ended up paying off. I'm not going to have a lot to say about the Cardinals offense because hopefully, fingers crossed, we get at least Kyler Murray back next week, which I think we will. They were probably just going to roll the dice here to see how much longer they could continue to win games without Murray and not having to force him back in. So hopefully we get him back going forward and then maybe DeAndre Hopkins too. Um, so I'm not going to focus too much on Colt McCoy turning back into a pumpkin this week. Okay. Vikings at Chargers, 27-20 Minnesota. Chargers were a three-and-a-half-point favorite at, at home. I put home in quotes because I'm sure there were probably as many Vikings fans there as there were Chargers fans. And my score is 27-25 Minnesota, so much more narrow. The headline here is, you know, are the Chargers good? Herbert being misused. And I'll talk about the Herbert thing. You're gonna, you guys are going to get some PFF on PFF crime here. Um, an assault from myself on uh, PFF underscore Seth, who I love. And I'm, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to talk through some of these things here. Uh, probably should have him on the pod to talk through some of these things, but whatever. We don't have time for that. My alternative headline is fake Staley, fake sharp. Are we going fake sharp here? Because he blew it. And what comes to Herbert is maybe this is just who he is rather than blaming the outside circumstances. So let's go to Staley first. He's on notice. We're going straight on notice. I was always a little skeptical of this guy. Despite, because he was just like, are we conflating aggressiveness with knowing what he's doing as far as fourth downs are concerned? And maybe this, this this might be a little bit too quick to go straight to unnoticed, but why not? He's going straight to unnoticed. 11% win probability lost in this game. 
with these calls. I have no idea what he's doing because he was going for it in much worse situations. Maybe he's been spooked a little bit by their lack of success the last few weeks. Maybe he thought this was such a winnable game. I'm not sure. Let's go through the calls. 0-0, first quarter, 521 left, um, fourth and four at the Minnesota 40-yard line. They end up getting a delay a game penalty. Come on, you got to be ready and go there. Um, no idea what happened on that one. I should probably watch the tape on that one. It, maybe that wasn't his fault if something happened weird happened, but come on, you got to go on that one. Um but if he was trying to do this, like, let's fake and going and then take a penalty and kick. Oh, my God, I can't stand that. Uh, next, we have fourth quarter. These are, these are really important ones here. Four minutes and 40 seconds left to go. Fourth and two at the Minnesota six, down by 10 points. This is a huge, huge, very, very strong go for it. Instead, they kick a 24-yard field goal. This is a guy who was going for you know, touchdowns rather than kick game-winning field goals at the end of games for no reason. And now he's going to kick a field goal to still be down by seven? Fourth and two at the six-yard line? Justin Herbert? Keenan Allen? Mike Williams? Come on, man. Um, again, just, whoa, what the heck is going on here? And then another one, this is a little bit less, um, but still, I, I say it's a it's a it's a mistake, and oh, actually no, I'm sorry. Those are the two plays that were the mistakes. Uh, I'm looking at the Minnesota one. So those are the two plays that were mistakes, and then Mike Zimmer, old man Zimmer, you know, not not fake sharp, maybe maybe sneaky sharp. Um, there's been a lot made of of Mike Zimmer's girlfriend, so go ahead and Google Mike Zimmer's girlfriend. We can see maybe why he is a uh, sneaky old man sharp. The Minnesota Vikings fourth and two at. The Chargers, 36-yard line, up by seven points. Two and a half minutes to go. They go for it, and they run a toss play to Dalvin Cook, pick up four yards, essentially end the game there. I like the toss there, too. Some people were, were some people really are allergic to these plays where you can lose yards on fourth down or in short yardage, and third down plays where you, lo- where you potentially have a higher probability of losing yards, like toss plays, Jet sweeps, things like that. Third down, yes, very bad on short yardage because you knock yourself out of the possibility of going for it on fourth down. On fourth down, who cares if you lose two yards or if you get stuffed? Doesn't matter. Not changing it. It's a turnover either way. So I like using those toss plays if you feel like your conversion probability is higher. Don't worry about the downside of losing yards there. So I thought that was good. And now let's get into the PFF on PFF crime here. Uh, our very talented Seth Galina wrote an article this week that's getting a lot of press. I see the football media cool kids are, are in on this theory here, which is everyone loves Justin Herbert now, despite the fact that they all hated him. The same group all hated him uh, coming out as a prospect. And Seth wrote an article entitled, The Los Angeles Chargers' Unwillingness to Let Justin Herbert Attack Downfield is Costing Them Wins. And I don't want to get into all the specifics of the article, but it's basically Lombardi comes in from the Saints, the offensive coordinator. He's running the Saints-ish sort of offense. I mean, the, 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 the big macro picture is like Justin Herbert, strong arm, throws down the field well, should be doing it more often. Offense designed for quick plays and not doing that. So 
this is going to hint a little bit on a rant I had last week about whether or not we should be confident in the opinions against coaches where we're critiquing what they spend all their time doing versus opinions against coaches when we're critiquing stuff they haven't really thought about in a systematic way. So the things they haven't thought about in a systematic way being the fourth down decisions, some of the big macro issues. This one falls into the category of things that coaches are thinking about a lot. I'm sure the coaches have thought about who Justin Herbert having a good arm. This is not something that we don't know. I'm sure the coaches have thought about he throws the ball well down the field. I'm sure Brandon Staley, when he became the head coach and chose Lombardi, thought about that. It wasn't like they didn't know who Herbert was at that point. I'm sure Lombardi, if he wanted to, could adjust. Now, maybe he's not adjusting. Maybe this is right. Maybe this is 100% right, this article. But I'm just talking about the confidence we should have in whether something is right or not and not just results-based because Herbert's struggling, so therefore we're pointing to things that are outside of him because we know that Herbert is good, so therefore it must be out something outside of him, despite the fact there were all these concerns about him as a prospect. So again, like you just have to say when you're when you're when you're when you're calibrating your skepticism on anything, you say, how likely is it that Lombardi doesn't understand what we're already talking about here or is just unwilling to do it. Maybe he's unwilling to do it. I could give you that. I don't want to do it like appeals to authority here, but we have to, you know, calibrate our our confidence on these things. And what's interesting here is Seth even mentions in this article that the offense was flying higher earlier this season. They were 4-1 and one after the Browns game, which they won because of a lot of lucky fourth down conversions. But anyway... Um, the passing office ranked fourth in the league in expected points added per play. And since that time, they're 19th in expected points at expected points added per play. And Herbert's average depth of target has fallen from 8.4 yards to 7.2 yards. Now that's something, you know, a lot of quick game that's happening, but how much are we just fitting the results into the narrative here? Because I went through Herbert's stats for the last two seasons, and I said, okay, let's see, now with this new offensive coordinator, had this breakout season last season, what are the, you know, what are the differences here? What are we seeing? So, Justin Herbert, 2020 versus 2021. EPA per play, 0.18 in 2020, 0.16 in 2021. Pretty similar, although he hasn't taken a step forward in that regard. Um, Let's look at some other stats here that I think give you a thing. Grade, 79.9, 2020, 87.2, 2021, even a better grade so far this season, but both pretty good. Now, pressure EPA. So under pressure, last season, we mentioned about Herbert being the number one quarterback in the NFL under pressure with a positive EPA under pressure. This season, negative 0.3. Not at the bottom of the league, but not so hot. So that's something that's changed. Again, pressure is very unstable. Is that a coaching issue? Maybe. But we can always mistake variance for something, quote-unquote something that we have to pin it to, and often that is coaching. Uh, been great on late downs both of the last two years. About equal sack rates, about equal completion percentage. Um, yards per attempt, 7.1 last year, 7.1 this year, touchdown rate, 5% last year, 5% this this year, interception rate, 1.6 last year, 2.1 this year, basically the same, 
Big time throw rate down slightly, turnover worthy play rate down slightly. And again, the A dot that we talked about last year, 8.1, this year, 7.9. Pretty similar. Time to throw last year, 2.5, this year, 2.5. Almost exactly the same. So a lot of these numbers are exactly the same. And I think we may be interpreting these splits that are happening during the season as a change in strategy or anything else, but it might just be variance. It might just be how defense is reacting. It might be something that clears itself up without having to make a necessary change. So when we don't see anything really changing in the broad season-long picture from Herbert, I'm less likely to think that this is a quote-unquote problem with what's going on offensively. While it could be happening, I'm not going to be very confident in that. And that's how I take narratives that are out there. I'm using, again, our own Seth Galina, who I love, and I'm not saying he's wrong about this. I'm using our own guy here to just give you an idea of how I will look at these narratives and parse through them rather than just quickly say, oh yeah, the the Chargers are blowing it offensively and that's what explains what's going on in these results because there's not a lot of evidence once you start really digging into it to back that up. Um, I do think there could be a bit of a personnel issue when they got rid of Tyron Johnson earlier this year. Jalen Guyton's not been as involved down the field. A lot of that is involved in ADOT, but you know they made so many huge, huge 50-yard plays to guys like Guyton and Johnson last year. It's just not going to happen that much. There was a little bit of a luck element to that last year where we're not seeing it this year. And I think that has to also be part of the equation. And, you know, Herbert may have some flaws. I think that's what we need to concentrate on is he's just not going to be the most consistent performer no matter how great he looks on a handful of long passes every game. Okay, let's get to the rest of these games here. Oh, my God, an unfortunate loss here again for our best bets. Seattle Seahawks at Green Bay Packers, 17-0 straight bagel city for the Seahawks here. Green Bay wins 17-0. They were three-point favorite. Uh, just a score, a lot closer, actually. 21-14. Green Bay, but still healthy seven points. Now, we were a loser. Loser bet here. We had him at three and a half. We got that half point of closing line value. Didn't matter. It's a pretty valuable half point, too, but... Did not matter. Lots of punts on fourth and short going back and forth. It was a punt fest early in the game, which is really, really ugly. Uh, I think the big takeaway here, I don't have a lot to say about this game. Both offenses struggled. Russ, people are just burying him now. So perhaps he's back. I'm back on team Russ underrated here after him getting completely buried um, by everyone. The The media cool kids are, are after him. The football media cool kids are after Russ big time. And... The Seahawks are now plus 300 to make the playoffs, so that makes them a 25% implied probability. Um, it's probably a little bit lower than that. It's rough, but that's still a chance. You know, roughly one in five, one in four chance of making the playoffs. It's decent there. Green Bay, I'm still skeptical of you guys. I'm sorry. Uh, offense was not great in this one. So don't have a ton to say about this one because it was such a pathetic offensive performance by the Seahawks that Green Bay wasn't really forced to do much themselves. Uh, offensively, but the Seahawks did play well enough. They had a decent success rate in this one. They're just not getting the explosive plays, which I mentioned earlier this year is the Seahawks have been well below average in their success rate, dropping back to pass the entire year, but they were doing really, really well the first handful of games because of these huge explosive plays. So they regressed there and now it's flipped to the other side. If they're not getting explosive plays on offense, they have real difficulty sustaining drives because they're not 
getting consistent enough running attack, and Russell Wilson is not consistent enough converting third downs, which he has struggled with to a degree throughout his career. So they need the return of explosive plays, which may just involve Wilson letting the ball fly a little bit more often, showing a little more trust in guys like DK Metcalf, Metcalf down the field. Okay, let's get to the last game here, which is I think is a pretty interesting one, actually, and that is the Philadelphia Eagles at Denver Broncos, 30-13 to Philadelphia Eagles, Denver, one-point favorite. And my adjusted score is a little bit closer, 26-14 Philly, but I will say, actually, I didn't do a headline on this one. So the headline I was saying, I think on this one is Eagles have a chance, Jalen Hurts for real, question mark. And my alternative headline is, yeah, I like that headline, actually. Um, I have been touting Hurts pretty heavily on here. Uh, maybe you could say it's a little bit of a confirmation bias because I wrote the definitive Jalen Hurts article when he was drafted about how it was a great pick, not only because he was a good prospect, but because it gave the Eagles optionality going forward, not knowing that Carson Wentz was necessarily the guy. I mean, again, you know, this is like gratuitous self-congratulation here, but it kind of played out exactly as I would have thought as far as giving themselves options here. And Hertz had another great game. He and Devontae Smith are showing a lot of chemistry. I think that I would take Hertz over a lot of guys right now for what he's shown. And it's not just what he's done passing. It's that he opens up the running game and they're leaning on that a lot more. Like that running quarterback opens up lanes when he's running the read option. So he's giving you a bump for the for the running game that doesn't necessarily show up in his own EPA numbers. He throws the ball effectively down the field. Maybe he's not the most accurate. Maybe he's not a great quick game sort of guy, but that's fine. He throws the ball well down the field. He's unafraid to throw it, and he makes good decisions, and he's, and he's athletic when it comes to scrambling, obviously, and picking up plays there or picking up plays on design runs. That can get you a long way if you build pieces around this guy. If you have one good receiver like Devontae Smith is all you really have. If you have a functional offensive line, if you have a defense that can hold down the opponent, which was a little bit strange in this game, the Bridgewater only had a 60% completion percentage after the Eagles have been giving up 80, 90% completion percentages to everyone recently, including to Herbert just the week before. But a lot of people are getting on the Hertz train and bandwagon. And, you know, I'm out there, I'm driving this, I'm driving the bandwagon. So, you know, come on in. I'll let you guys in. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be a, a gatekeeper here. Come on onto the bandwagon here with Jalen because the Eagles have three picks. Could be three picks in the top fifteen next year. Not a lot to potentially spend those on in the draft when it comes to quarterback. I think you can build around Jalen Hurts. I know I've heard some people uh, analyze him and say they're still thinking. Oh, he's making some wrong reads. He's doing this like people are digging into the nitty gritty. I'm gonna be results based here. I'm going to keep that in mind that maybe he he does have some issues as a passer. But, hey, if the guy continues to be top 10-ish as far as his grading, as far as his EPA per play, and the upside that he's adding to that rushing offense, good enough for me to build around in a lot of ways. We talk, we talk about guys like Baker Mayfield, you know, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz. Should you be building around them? I mean, why wouldn't you rather have Hurts than all those guys, quite honestly? right now. I think I would. Uh, maybe I got to think about it a little bit more, but I think I would. $1.5 million cap hit. He's still got a couple of years left on that rookie contract. Let's continue to build around him with those picks. 
rather than ship them all out for another quarterback. I mean, maybe someone like Deshaun Watson, and I'm just going to put the all the sexual assault stuff to the side when I'm talking about this, while acknowledging that it's disgusting and I would not want him. Um, like, if you get someone young there, I guess, but these thoughts of, like, Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or whoever else may be available makes no sense to me to go in on like that with this type of team rather than use those draft picks and build around Hurts since you've done such a good job accumulating those and you really hit on a very valuable quarterback in the second round who has, like, again, $1.5 million cap hit next year. All right. Thank you so much, everybody. Go ahead, rate, review the pod. Uh, Leave questions in YouTube or comments in YouTube. I like to respond to those and get a response there. Unless, you know, it's an idiot comment, then I'll just hit the thumbs down and move on. I'll be back with you on Friday, hopefully with some better picks than we had last week for our best bets. I think that was our first losing week, although I might be wrong. That might be our second losing week. Regardless, we've been pretty successful so far this year, so hopefully we'll continue that going forward. And you can also email me if you want to send me something directly. Uh, Well, follow me on Twitter, of course, at KevinColePFF, or email me uh, Kevin.Cole at PFF.com. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you in a few days.